Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. <clears throat> Turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, kids, in the Bibles that we've given you or in the Bibles on the back table, that begins on page 553. We'll be in verses 112 through the end of chapter 2, 226. If only, I would suspect that those two words are not very far from any of us. Those words rattle around in our head daily, weekly, several times a day. If only I had, insert the commercial product here, a car, a phone, a new TV, a different place to live, a new golf club. Or if only I could insert the situation here, get this health thing figured out, or get my youngest out of diapers, or get my child a job and a sense of direction in life, or make just a little bit more money, or find a way to get some free time, or get out of debt. Or if only I could insert the achievement you're striving for. If only I could win the race, if only I could get the promotion, get the sale, win the award, get accepted to this school, accomplish this certification, get my kids to a point where they can care for themselves and make their own lunch, get my kids to stop arguing incessantly all day long, or have my husband or wife understand me, or get a date with that person, or get uh, married, or any number of things. I'm just scratching the surface to all the if-onlys that are rattling around in our heads. They're triggering your prayer requests. They're probably many times triggering your confessions. For if-onlys are oftentimes the sprigs and shoots of covetousness and jealousy and rebellion in our lives. The reason for that is because if-onlys don't exist alone, right? They're followed by another word. If only then, 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 if only I had this, then. It's not that we're really desiring the thing that follows the if-only. We're really after the thing that follows the then. The thing that follows the if only is the thing that we think will trigger the fulfillment that follows the then. Then my life will be complete. Then I will experience fulfillment. Then I will be able to relax. Then I will have everything I want. Then I will be happy. Then I will have it made. We want to be fulfilled. Every single one of us wants to be fulfilled. And we are not fulfilled because we either think we don't have enough, either in variety or quantity, or the problem lies with us and we don't understand what will fulfill us. So we need to have our eyes opened and we need to be informed what will accomplish this for us. The new product, the new model, the new procedure is right around the bend. And 
that will hold the answer that we're looking for. This is true for the retired person. This is true for the kid. This is true for the man. This is true for the woman. This is true for the single. This is true for the married. This is true for the Christian. And this is true for the unbeliever. The book of Ecclesiastes seeks to get after this issue. And it looks at it from the perspective of under the sun or apart from God. Sure, the Christian knows that we can find fulfillment apart from uh, that we can't find fulfillment apart from God. But what we know to be true and what our lives show by how we live them can oftentimes be two different things. There's a reason that in Colossians 3, Paul makes great effort to convince the Christian to set their mind on things above. For that is where your life is. And there's a reason that in Paul in Ephesians 1, prays that we may have eyes to see what is the hope beyond this life. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us, because if we only have hope in this life only, then we are above all most to be pitied. So Ecclesiastes serves us by playing out the argument to its logical conclusion. What if you tried with all your might to live this life to its fullest according to the world's promises and claims? Would you find the fulfillment you're looking for? And this is the exact exercise that the preacher undertakes in our passage today in Ecclesiastes 1.12 through 2.26. So let's begin reading in 1.12 and we'll stop in verse 18. Before we do, we should pay attention to what the preacher says. Uh, well, let me read it and then we'll talk about it. First, uh, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity in a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So what, what we start off with, we need to pay attention to what the preacher is saying. One, because he can be trusted on this. He is the authority. His authority should be heeded because one, verse 13 says that he is a king. So he has some resources that we don't have at our availability, at our hand. He's not limited in conducting the exercise that he's about to undertake. He makes the rules. Also, verses 13 and 16 say that he's wise, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before him. 
He's had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And so he's not oblivious or ignorant to what's out there or the, what the world has to offer. It's all at his fingertips. And the preacher gives his conclusion at the outset. He doesn't want you to be fooled or wait for his findings. Don't be surprised. And this is our first point. What he tells us is this life is futile. That's our first point. This life is futile. Now the definition of futile is incapable of producing any usable, useful result. Pointless. Well, that's a downer. But we all know this to be the case in our own experience. Sure, we've had some fun times, but they don't seem to last. Life can be pretty mundane. Mundane sometimes means you don't have anything to do. Mundane, mundane other times means that you're just dragged around by your nose from activity to activity. And you don't have control over anything. Both of it can seem pretty pointless. But we all know that life is futile. That's been our experience, which is why we have those if-onlys rolling around in our heads. The preacher has seen everything that is done under the sun, and he says he pronounces it vanity. A striving after the wind. You can't catch wind. You can't contain it. You can't hold it in your hand. You don't know when it's coming, and you don't know where it's going. But what's surprising about this vanity is who has made it this way. Verse 13, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So God, the giver of life and creator of all things, made life unhappy? Yes, but he didn't do it on his own. As Pastor Tim um, um, described before he read the Old Testament reading, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were living in perfect union with the Father and, and, and experiencing true, um, uh, unlimited fulfillment with Christ, uh, with the Lord, the way that they were created to. But they were deceived by the serpent. The serpent suggested to them, God is holding out on you. God is not giving you all the fulfillment that you deserve. He told you not to eat from that tree. That tree is the true fulfillment. He doesn't want you to eat from it because then you'll be like him. And you won't need him anymore. You can decide for yourselves what to do then. You don't have to listen to him at all. He doesn't want you to eat from him because he wants to be needed. So they ate from the tree that God commanded them not to eat. And as punishment, their lives would be subject to death. They were expelled from the garden. They were forced to live under the sun and apart from God in their lives. And their days would be ones of futility and difficulty. That's the curse that we read about. But while they were punished, there was hope. Because God still provided for them graciously. And there was this, pro this faint promise that we read that it's not the final say. And one day this curse would be overcome. And so, friend, what you're experiencing in this life isn't a failure on your part. It's part of the curse. You're not crazy. You're not doing it wrong. This is the plight of all mankind. 
And you can't do anything about it. Verse 15. What's crooked cannot be made straight. What God has done can't be undone. And what's lacking cannot be counted. Any attempts to engineer or invent ourselves out of the curse are futile. And that lack that you feel that's unquantifiable can't be filled under the sun. And you can only know this with wisdom. But wisdom in this case will only show you how much you don't know. And will reveal what you can't control. Therefore, this leads to sorrow. In much wisdom is much, for in much wisdom there is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Pastor Larry and Mark and I were talking last week about this. If you look at wise characters in movies or in books, wise characters are often sorrowful. Their joy is muted but deep. But there's this knowing sorrow about them. They know what's around the bend. And so I challenge you to find a wise, joyful, jovial character in literature. Most of the time, there's deep, still waters that have a noticeable sorrow to them. So the preacher moves from this baseline of the futility of life and he moves to the second point of our text this morning in, verse, in chapter 2, verses 1 through the first half of verse 14. Now, the, the preacher's wise, before we read that, the preacher's wise. He knows you're not going to take his word for it, that all of life is futile and just here ends the lesson. He knows you've seen thousands upon thousands of commercials and that, that promise that happiness and fulfillment or within your grasp for the low, low price of $29.95 and plus $7.95 for shipping and handling. And so we, he knows we've bought the sales pitch hook, line, and sinker, just like our first parents did from the serpent. The novelist Gertrude Stein said, whoever said money can't buy happiness didn't know where to shop. We don't take God's pronouncement of futility as final. We are hell-bent on seeking that fulfillment any way we can. So the preacher conducts an experiment for our benefit. Let's begin reading in 2.1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the first, the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. 
I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity in a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So the man, this is our second point, the man tries to combat futility by pursuing fulfillment. Man tries to combat futility by pursuing fulfillment. So this preacher dares to go boldly where no one has gone before. He's going to attempt to test pleasure. He's going to taste and analyze its claims. He's going to attempt to seek fulfillment apart from God. He starts with amusement and folly. For our purposes that he could say that he's, he's attempting to, to find fulfillment in comedy and diversion and rides and games like for the Williamsons we could say it's the smugglers run or the rise of the resistance sure it creates happiness in the moment but then what there's no lasting value whatsoever to it once you get off the ride then he moves on to wine for our purposes, it could be liquor, drugs, whatever. But let me say here, there's a difference. There's a difference to how he's going about these things than the way that we go about these things. He's not giving himself over to these pleasures. We see in verses 3 and in verses 9, his heart guides him in wisdom. In verse 9, my wisdom remained with me. It's an experiment that he's doing done in wisdom. He takes these things on with wisdom as his guide. He's going to plumb the depths and soar the heights of indulgence and pleasure to search for ultimate fulfillment to see if by doing so he may be able to escape the futility of this life. But with wisdom, he's doing it with eyes wide open. It's like a cave diver who goes in to to explore unimaginable depths that have never been explored before. And he's in these dark cave rooms and doesn't know what's around the corner. But he does so tied to a dive line that goes back to the surface, that goes back to the boat and safety. So that he's not lost when he goes into these things. Wisdom is his guide so that he can always turn around and follow his rope all the way out back up to safety. So wisdom is the preacher's dive line as he explores the depths and dangers of pleasure that we can only imagine. 
So he explored cheering his body with wine. But then he moved on to great works. He said he built houses and vineyards and gardens and parks and fruit trees, pools with which to water the trees of this growing forest. Incidentally, what does this sound like? The Garden of Eden. He's attempting to recreate the garden. He's attempting to go back to the beginning and see if I can do this my way. He's his own creator. Three times in verses four through six, we read myself. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water. He doesn't need God. He can do it all on his own. He's making this for himself. I see another allusion to the garden there in verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. An echo to our Old Testament reading, right? Where the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. And, she did, and it was to be desired to make one wise. Part of the curse is that you'll have to tend the garden and that, that by the sweat of the brow you'll eat from it. He overcomes that. He's got male and female servants and had slaves born in his house. He's not sweating. He's creating. He's imagining. He's having others do the work. It's self-sustaining. The forest is growing. The slaves are growing. They're multiplying. They're filling the earth. The trees are being watered. The servants are, um, are doing all the work. This is an expansion of a new creation. To carry on with the garden theme, he had great possessions. He had uh, flocks and herds, more than any in Jerusalem had ever had before. He had silver and gold. Kings and queens would come and would, would, would provide for him more than he ever imagined. It was, it was self-sustaining and an ever-increasing supply. If you read 1 Kings 9 and 10, and you read of rulers coming from near and far to meet and learn from King Solomon and how they brought an embarrassment of riches to him. He had singers. He had both men and women. He had private concerts. The greatest, the greatest of all time, the greatest singers, the most famous in the land were at his beck and call. He had concubines. If you read... Um, uh, of King Solomon in 1 Kings 11, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. The bottom line, everything you could ever want he had, both in variety, in magnitude, and in quantity. If life were a restaurant, he ordered the seafood platter, the filet, and the banana pudding. He kept from his heart no pleasure Whatever his eyes desired, he did not keep from them. He tried it all. And on top of that, most people who are uber rich are kind of jerks. Nobody likes them. Like, yeah, he's got a lot of money, but he doesn't have any friends. Not the preacher, it seems. Verse 9, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. He was well-liked. He was admired. He had it all. He wasn't a fake. What you saw is what you got. It wasn't like it was all on credit. He's paying cash, baby. 
in his finding, verse 11, all is vanity. Striving after the wind. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. It's a vapor. It's fleeting. As soon as you grab it, it's gone. Like me, you may watch the Food Network from time to time. I've yet to see a show touting the best 10 cotton candy restaurants in the country. I've seen other best food I ever ate shows, which are ridiculous enough. But even the Food Network won't say, okay, we're going to do a show on the best cotton candy. Why? Because it's fleeting. The minute you stick it in your mouth, it's gone. You get a faint hint of it, and then it's gone. The whole process is less than three seconds. It hits your tongue, and it's the roof of your mouth. It's gone. It's a wispy, faint suggestion of pleasure, but it's gone. For the man who has everything, all of life is like cotton candy. It's fleeting. There's nothing to be gained by it. So we should heed the word of the preacher and learn from it. We have to turn in a different direction because what can the man do who comes after the king? We can't improve upon that. That's what he's getting at there in verse 12. For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. And we can't even achieve those heights. So it's not like we can go, well, he tried it and it didn't work, but I think I ought to try it. I mean, it's not like I can possibly do a better job than he did. He pursued it with no limitation. He pursued it with no cost to himself. It seems like his resources were never depleted. He pursued it with no fear of repercussion, no consequence. He made the rules. He created it. He answered to absolutely no one. He was bound in no way. So if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, he wasn't able to find fulfillment and folly and sensual indulgence, but I think I can do it. No, you won't. Your life is beset with constraints at every single turn. You don't have the wherewithal to experience even a fraction of what the king experienced in any area of life. Nor can you dive the depths that he dove without harm to yourself because you don't have the wisdom that the preacher king had. Last weekend we were at an event and the parking was very tight and so we're driving around doing that thing where you're trying to find the parking spot and so you know you're just weaving in and out and you're going oh my gosh are we ever going to find some place and so we're driving down the, the main aisle and I look down this way and there's a dead end and I see this car doing the three-point turn coming out well what does that tell you it tells you he went to the end and he didn't see it so there's no sense me driving down there there's i'm not going to look i'm not going to find what i'm looking for down there there's no joy there there's no sense heading down there someone's already coming back the preacher is coming back up the row you won't find what you're looking for down there i've done it i've been there I've been as far as you can go that way. Don't turn, I mean, don't go down there. Turn around. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your life. And you think, yeah, but maybe it would be fun to figure this out on my own. 
Friend, you've already figured it out on your own. That's why you're pursuing it to a greater extent. Because it hasn't paid off for you yet. And so you hope maybe the next time it'll pay off for you. You haven't found joy. You haven't found satisfaction. You still haven't found what you're looking for. Which is why you keep driving further and further down this dead end road. And your pursuit is costing you dearly. It's costing you your resources. It's costing you your health. It's costing you your reputation. It's costing you your life. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 says, Now say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, you've given, they've given themselves over to sensuality and every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It's futile thinking. You may think, yeah, but the, the preacher's error is that he held something back. I mean, if you really want to completely pursue pleasure, you have to go all in. You've got to throw caution to the wind. You've got to get rid of wisdom. You have to fully give yourself over to indulgence. That, my friend, is the voice of the enemy. And that is a trap that leads straight to hell. Once that door slams shut on you, there is no return. You will be lost in the caves of the abyss forever. And total judgment will come upon you. Do not buy into the lie. That is the path and exercise of a fool. Which leads us to another pursuit, all part of this second point, another pursuit uh, of the preacher. If fulfillment can't be found in folly, then fulfillment must be found in wisdom. That's what he says there in verses 12 through the first half of 14. And he says, true, wisdom is better than folly. There is far, just as there is more benefit to light than there is to darkness. You don't bump into things in the light. It's easier to get taken advantage of at night in the dark when you can't see things as they truly are. And so the same goes for wisdom. The wise person can better steer clear of things, uh, of the threats that a fool can. This just makes sense, right? So yes, wisdom has some benefit, but there's a problem. And that's what we find next in the last half of verse 14 through verse 23, which is our, which is our, our, our next point, our second point. I said it was our second point earlier. This is our second point. Death is the great equalizer. We see that in verses 14 through 23. Death is the great equalizer. Let's get a running start at it. Let's go up to verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. 
Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So death is the great equalizer. Commentator Derek Kidner on this section says, if one fate comes to all, and that fate is extinction, it robs every man of his dignity and every project of its point. So we see that in this passage. It robs every man of their dignity. So we see death as the great equalizer. Death comes to everyone. Death comes to the wise. Death comes to the fool. Sure, the fool may die in a foolish way, but wisdom isn't going to keep you from dying. So the preacher asked, if wisdom can't keep me from dying, what value is wisdom? Wisdom's just going to make me more aware of my impending death, and then I'm going to, call, I'm going to think about it more. So that's depressing. So the fool spends all of his resources trying to cover up the fact that his time is short and he's going to die. While the wise man just spends all his time thinking about his death. Both are dealing with the same end. But death not only comes to you, but death comes to your reputation and your remembrance. We see that in verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. As Pastor Kyle pointed out last week, you may know your great-great-great-grandfather's name, but do you know anything about them beyond that? I know both of my great-great-grandfather's names, but I couldn't pick them out of a lineup. I mean, every now and then I'll get a picture from a relative saying, this is your great-uncle who died in 1921. Okay, what am I supposed to do with that? No matter how cool you are, you're going to end up being forgotten. Your memory won't last. I can tell of my children of the life of my mother who died in 2005, and they can patiently listen to the stories. But what now? 
What impact is her life going to have on theirs? Next to nothing. And that's recent. She was a good loving lady. But it doesn't live on. So the preacher says in verse 17, so I hated life. What is done under the sun is grievous to me for all is vanity. And the striving after the wind. I'm sorry if on Mother's Day you thought you were going to get some uplifting feel good. <laughs> this life has failed to deliver on its promise. The preacher found that this life has far more in co common with cotton candy than it does with Mount Everest impermanence. Death will also, death comes to you, death will come to your remembrance, death will also come to your work. We see that in verses 18 through 23. This reality caused the preacher to hate his work, hate all that he had done. Why? Because he was going to have to leave it to someone else. Now, that may sound like, it doesn't mean that the preacher wanted everything for himself and he's like, no, mine, I'm going to, I'm just going to destroy it so you can't have it. That's not what he's saying. But if he leaves it to the wise man, the wise man will be just as grieved by these works and their failure to fulfill. Because he will see that all is vanity as well. And those great works will have to be maintained. They may very well become a burden to the next generation. The resources of the second generation oftentimes dwindle. They don't match those of the first. And then seeking to keep these things or sustain these things become a wearisome tasks, task. And history will judge your work. Sure, it may survive, but it may not be well received in the next generation. I hear Graceland is like that. Elvis built Graceland as kind of this Shangri-La. He wanted it to be the Shangri-La. It had everything he could possibly want, all the bells and whistles. But if you look at it 50 years later, it looks small, it looks pretentious, it looks pretend, it looks lonely. You may argue, but yeah, but what if I build a hospital? Like Memorial Hermann. That guy made a name for himself, didn't he? Well, I don't know, his name wasn't Memorial Hermann. What was his first name? What was Mr. Herman's first name? I went on the Memorial Herman website about us and to see what's the history. I couldn't find the name of George Herman on the Memorial Herman website. If you want to know about it in the history of the organization, the founder, George Herman, is not on there. He died in 1914. His, name, his work may live on, but now it's a corporation run by a board of directors. But what if the fruit of your labor falls into the hands of a fool? Someone who thinks that this is the path to happiness, that this is the golden ticket of fulfillment. At best, that person will arrive at the same place that we have arrived at, that the preacher has arrived at. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. But if they think that this is the purpose of life, then you have done nothing but leave them a time-release trap that will spring on them 
after you're dead and gone with no one to help them. So all of this led the preacher to despair. What gain has a man or woman from all the toil and striving of heart? His days are full of sorrow. His nights are restless and weary from the weariness of work. His life is one of vexation as he works hard to receive something that is to satisfy but never as he works hard to receive something that is to satisfy but never does. So he works harder and he works longer to get more ahead only to find vexation waiting for him at the next milestone. This also is vanity. So where does it leave us? This leads us to his last point in verses 24 through 26. Fulfillment in this life can only come from God's hand. Fulfillment in this life can only come from God's hand. Let's read verse 24. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat, that he should eat drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Fulfillment in this life can only come from God's hand. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This will be the repeated refrain throughout the book. We'll see it like five more times. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his, in his toil. But this seems to be a problem, doesn't it? He seems to be saying something antithetical to what he's just spent all this time telling us. There is no joy in any of this stuff. And, frankly, it's antithetical to Christianity. He sounds like something that Paul would be, Paul is saying against the uh, fatalist who thinks there's no resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And the preacher said that he's just tried to find fulfillment of this stuff in his belly and it didn't pay off. So now he's telling us that that's as good as it gets. We just eat and drink and find enjoyment in our toil. No, I think what he's saying is that fulfillment in this life is far easier and much simpler than we make it out to be. For enjoyment in this life is found in the work itself that God grants and the joy that God grants. The preacher gives us a clue in this uh, back in, in 2.10 where he's finding fulfillment in the middle, trying, seeking to find fulfillment in the middle of this in pursuit of indulgence. And then in 2.10 he says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward for all my toil. His heart found pleasure in the work itself. The work itself was the reward. Not in what it gives. 
Earlier, I suggested that he was creating the Garden of Eden apart from God, seeing if he could find happiness and fulfillment and joy apart from God. But in the exercise, he was imitating God as creator. And in that imitation of God, in that imaging of God, he found the joy that he was looking for. We were created to work. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We're all image bearers. We're all created to create. We're all made to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and subdue it. We're all called to push back darkness with light. And when we do those things, we reflect God's character and we find joy. But we mustn't make it out to be something that it isn't. These basic kindnesses that God gives us in the midst of a toilsome life are God's way of sustaining us through the hard life that the curse has laid out for us. He gives us simple pleasures. He enables us to have family dinners and barbecue and music and gumbo and Karen Newcomer desserts. And these are all from the hand of God. But Derek Kidner says what spoils them is our hunger to get more out of them than they can give us. We mustn't make something out of them that they aren't. What spoils them is our hunger to get more out of them than they can give. We can only come to this knowledge, this fine, subtle, nuanced knowledge regarding enjoyment through the Lord. Because apart from him, we're destined to make joy and pleasure idols. We're all tempted to build a tent up on that mountain of joy and stay there. This may seem like a novel concept, but the Bible is replete with these themes. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Colossians 3, 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus warns, or James warns us to keep from putting too much emphasis on what comes next uh, rather than living for today and enjoying what the Lord provides in James 4, 13, when he says, come now, you say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such place and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Or Jesus in Matthew 6, where he says, don't worry about what we eat or what we drink or what we wear. The pagans run after those things. But work. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek to find your joy there. Seek, seek him. And then all these other things will be provided to you as well in due time. Or think of Jesus in our New Testament reading today. In Luke 12, it sure sounds like he has Ecclesiastes in mind when he says in Luke 12, 19 and 20. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Who will whose will they be? You're going to have to give them to someone else, which is straight 
straight preacher language. In David Gibson's commentary on Ecclesiastes, he says about these verses, the preacher tells us that God has to give the enjoyment or the thing itself, whether it be a phone or job or sex or house or car, will leave us unsatisfied. In the way God gives us enjoyment in his gifts is by giving us perspective on ourselves. When we know that the gift is not meant to be a stepping stone to greater things, when we realize that we are not meant to rule the world or master our destiny or achieve ultimate gain through our careers, then we discover that enjoyment or joy is itself the reward that we may expect from life and all our effort expended living in it. There is no surplus to joy beyond joy itself. There is indeed no pathway to joy except by refusing to pursue it and grasp at it. We see um, in verse 26 a parallel to the talents of Matthew uh, and a uh, parable of the talents in Matthew 25 where to the one who pleases God, who works with wisdom, more wisdom and knowledge and joy will be given. But to the one who doesn't, to the sinner, what he has will be taken away. In, in verse 26, to the sinner, he has been given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. And so it sounds bad. It sounds like we're that the uh, uh, the sinner is given to giving to uh, gathering and collecting, but it may mean that the sinner has a lot of stuff that we don't have. It may mean the sinner has a lot more stuff than the wise person does or the righteous person. But there's no, um, um, they may have great wealth, but it's going to be a trap for them. And in the end, they're going to end up giving it up. In the end, they're going to end up having to give it to someone else because they're, they're going to be separated from it in the grave. Thinking that they, uh, they are given to gathering and collecting, thinking that they're obtaining happiness and fulfillment only to find on the final day it's not theirs. They've spurned the hand of God that graciously gave it to them. And they'll have to give it to someone else. Do you thank God for your work? Or do you thank God it's Friday? Do you do your job because of what it provides for you? Thinking that the money that you make will enable you to pursue fulfillment apart from nine to five? If so, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. It's all striving after the wind. Now this doesn't mean that your heart sings all the time in work. And it doesn't mean that we all deserve a job that we feel, feel ultimately fulfilled in and joyful. Because of the fall, there are thorns, there are difficulties. Work is hard, work is toilsome. The garbage still has to be picked up. We can't be all be architects or custom furniture makers or doctors. Nor does this mean that if you're retired or disabled, there's no purpose in life. We all have work to do. We're all pushing back darkness. We're all mirroring God's image in our days. This is the work that you're called to. I must admit that yesterday doing weeding and 
bush trimming, I had a different mindset to it than I have before. Because before I was always wanting to just be done with it. Oh, you can't wait till I'm done. But then as you finish up, you realize you're never done. Because as I'm raking stuff, magnolia leaves are still falling from the tree. And wind is still blowing stuff into the driveway. And it's never done. Weeds are growing this very morning. But I talk myself to myself in this process. I'm pushing back chaos. I'm working in the garden. I'm mirroring God's image. By cutting out Virginia creeper, I'm filling the earth and subduing it. Ecclesiastes 9, 9 and 10. Enjoy all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to where you're going. This isn't the end of the argument. This is just the beginning. So we have plenty of time to think on these things. But it is a sobering thought to think on. That death is coming to us all. That's the judgment on mankind because we have all sinned. We haven't obeyed God's commands. We have not imaged him to one another or to creation the way that we were created. And so like our first parents, we're subject to death. And not just death, but judgment. Eternal judgment. And that judgment is final. And that verdict is already in. We are guilty. But Jesus Christ came to earth lived perfectly, humbly lived as a servant, filling the earth which he created with the knowledge of the glory of God. And he died in place of sinners like you and me to pay the penalty that we deserve. And he was raised from the dead as proof that that penalty for sin has been paid for anyone who will ever acknowledge their sin, turn from it, and trust in Christ. And he will come again. And he will bring all those who are found trusting in him to himself. Where, he will want, we will, where we will once again experience life the way that it was originally created. Without futility. But with ever increasing and abounding joy. As we find our true fulfillment in the Lord. Our all satisfying treasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we... We thank you for opening our eyes to the end of man. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the hope to which you have called us and the riches of the glorious inheritance that await us. Forgive us for trying to seek our fulfillment here. But Lord, we thank you for the simple pleasures and joys that you give us in this life. And as we enjoy them and as we savor them, May it direct our eyes upward to see you, the gracious giver of all good things, who is worthy of all of our praise and obedience. In Jesus' name we pray.